Let's turn just a few pages further to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 7 sets some of the context. And now we turn to that well-known verse. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9.6 has been called the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies. It's one of the most familiar prophecies about the birth of Christ. One of the reasons for its popularity, of course, is Handel's great masterpiece, the work for which he is most remembered, Handel's Messiah. Most people hear it at some point during the Christmas season, either in the mall, in the grocery store, at a concert, or in your own home. God gave to Handel a remarkable gift for music. By the time he was 12, he had written his first composition and was so skilled at the organ that he began substituting for his organ teacher. Handel became a great international composer. In 1741, he wrote his greatest masterpiece. He wrote it in 24 days without leaving his house. It is said that Handel composed like a man obsessed. During those 24 days, he rarely left his room and ate very little. His servant brought him his trays of food and piled them out out, out, outside the door. In 24 days, he had composed 260 pages, an immense accomplishment. Although some have said that Handel was an agnostic, when he finished writing what would become known as the Hallelujah Chorus, he said, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. His composition became an overnight success. And even if he was an agnostic, I don't know enough about him to comment, even if he was an agnostic, it has been used by God for some 280 years to remind us of that great prophecy describing the majesty of Christ. Who is not moved when he hears the singing of that powerful chorus and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What rich truths are packed into that one short verse. No wonder Isaiah 9-6 has been called the centerpiece of all the Christmas prophecies. Written by the prophet some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah was able, by the Holy Spirit, to see across the centuries and give us a wonderful description of the Savior and His birth. 
Today, as we unfold this verse, we want to consider first the uniqueness of his character. Second, the prediction of his authority. And third, the dignity of his name. But before we expand on these three points, I want to briefly draw your attention to the historical context in which this prophecy was given. In chapter 7, Ahaz, king of Judah, flatly rejected Yahweh, the covenant God of his fathers, and turned instead to the gods of the nations. Because he rejected the Lord, served the Baals, and burned his children to Molech in the valley of Hinnom, the Lord punished him by sending Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel to fight against him. Judah was paralyzed with fear because of Syria and Israel. It was at this time of desperate need that the Lord sent Ahaz the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah came to call him to faith. Their predicament was on account of their departure from God. Judah had to return to the Lord. Ahaz had to repent of his sin and place his confidence in God. But Ahaz wouldn't listen to Isaiah. He determined to follow the deadly path of disobedience and unbelief. Instead of trusting the Lord, he called upon Assyria for assistance. He who sat upon the throne of David hardened his heart and turned to a pagan nation for help. Through the mouth of Isaiah, the Lord even set him before him a most gracious offer. In chapter 7, you probably noticed that, chapter 7, verse 11, he said to Isaiah, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. The Lord was willing to prove to Ahaz the truthfulness of his word by granting whatever sign the king wanted. The whole universe was set before him, as it were. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above or anything in between. Think about that. God was willing to give a sure confirmation to prove his word and to establish the faith of Ahaz. The congregation Ahaz was not interested. He rejected the gracious offer and stubbornly refused to take the road of faith to which he was called. It was within this context that Isaiah proclaimed a Christmas prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Over against the king of Assyria, Isaiah proclaimed the divine king. There would only be hope for Ahaz and Judah if they believed in him. True deliverance would come through the son born to a virgin. A greater salvation than deliverance from Syria would be provided through Emmanuel. He would come to deliver people from the deadly enemy of sin. Ahaz must believe in Emmanuel. Judah must believe in him. It is within this context that we also find the Christmas prophecy of Isaiah 9 verse 6. While Ahaz anxiously sought military aid from Assyria, Isaiah proclaimed the true king. 
While Ahaz was an unfaithful and ungodly king upon the throne of David, there is one, there is one coming who is faithful and godly, one to be seated upon the throne. With prophetic insight, Isaiah was able to see across the centuries, 700 years to the time when this king would come. A child would be born to the house of David who would rule righteously and justly. Notice in verse 6, congregation, the certainty of Isaiah's prophecy. Have a look there. Although the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-6 would not be complete for another 700 years, Isaiah is so certain of its truth that he wrote as though it had already taken place. In the Hebrew text, verse 6 describes this event in the past tense. A literal translation would read like this, For a child, he has been born to us. A son, he has been given to us. And the government has been upon his shoulders. By using the past tense, Isaiah was describing a future event that was so sure that he could write as though it had already occurred. The birth of this child will take place without a shadow of a doubt. It is a sure thing. A child, he has been born. A son, he has been given. Isaiah's prophetic vision was so clear that he could already see the child before his eyes. It's as though he's transported through time to the place in Bethlehem where Jesus lay in a manger. It's as though the prophet stood next to the shepherds as they gaze upon the babe lying in the manger. Isaiah stands next to that manger and he says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Here is the one in whom salvation is to be found. Hope of all the earth thou art. Well, let us then consider the uniqueness of his character. Number one, the uniqueness of his character. First of all, Isaiah says in verse 6 that this child would be an ordinary child, just like any other. For unto us a child is born. He would begin his life just like any other human. He would grow in the womb. His mother would experience the pain of labor. And he would come into the world as a normal child. The first part of verse 6 is not such a profound statement in itself, for unto us a child is born. Babies are born every day. And while the birth of a baby is a wonderful and a beautiful thing, it is a common occurrence. Babies have been born for thousands of years. We're amazed each time one is born, but we also recognize that it is a normal fact of life. As Isaiah gazed across the centuries, he saw a normal flesh and blood child, an infant. The child would be fully human. But then, notice the second part of verse 6. The prophet says, unto us a son is given. Do you see the two important verbs that are used of Christ's coming? Is born and is given. As a child, he is born, but as a son, he is given. The second phrase of verse 6 speaks of the son's pre-existence. The son existed before he was born. As God, the second person of the Trinity, he was given to us to be our Savior. That familiar text, John 3, verse 16, says, God so loved the world that he 
gave his only begotten son. The child was not only born through the natural process and therefore fully human, he was also given of the Father and therefore fully God. In these first two verses, in these first two story phrases of verse 6, we see that the coming child would be both human and divine, both born and given. He would be not only man and not only God, but he would be the God-man. Do you see, congregation, how the two natures of Christ are already foreshadowed in the Old Testament? To be a complete Savior, he had to be a true and righteous man, but also true God. The promised child had to be born and given. He had to be human and divine. As man, he was tempted as we are, yet remained without sin. As God, he was able to deal with your sin and bear the burden of God's wrath. And brothers and sisters, this truth becomes self-evident as you read the New Testament Gospels. For example, on one occasion, when the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was asleep in the boat, exhausted from that day's activities. As they crossed, a storm arose that was so fierce, it frightened even those seasoned fishermen. They awoke Jesus and said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Jesus arose and calmed the storm. Now, what could be more human than our Lord's total exhaustion in the boat? But then again, what could be more divine than his stilling of the waves and the winds? The disciples exclaimed, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? His true humanity and his full deity were clearly revealed. As a child, he is born, but as a son, he is given. This promised child is unique. Secondly, we notice not only the uniqueness of the child, but also the prediction of his authority. The prediction of his authority. As Isaiah gazed across the centuries, he saw that this child would be a ruler. Verse 6 says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. All the responsibilities of government will rest upon his shoulder. This child is going to be a king, a ruler, a sovereign. Now remember, congregation, the context in which this prophecy was given. Ahaz, king of Judah, was shaking in his boots because of the threat of Syria and Israel. But Isaiah was able to look beyond this instability to the coming king who would rightly bear the responsibilities of government. When we turn to the New Testament, we see that his rule is not only over Judah or Judah and Israel reunited. His rule is a universal rule. The entire universe is subject to him. During Jesus' earthly ministry, there were those who wanted to take him by force and make him their king, to set him as king over Israel. Jesus had to correct their mistaken notions concerning his rule. And when he stood before Pilate, he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
After his death and resurrection, just prior to his ascension, he spoke to his disciples, and what did he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The authority of this child in our text would be both universal and eternal. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, he said to her, He will be great. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And brothers and sisters, at the conclusion of the New Testament, we find the culmination of this theme. In Revelation 19, Christ is depictured in all his glory and majesty. All his enemies are subject to him, and he rules over them with a rod of iron, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What Isaiah saw in our text looks beyond that first Christmas to the time when the government of the whole universe will rest on his shoulder and he will reign as sovereign over an eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. Dear friends, throughout history there have been many kings, rulers, presidents, and prime ministers. Some of them have ruled well, some of them have not. Some of them have been just and pursued righteousness. Some have not. But even the greatest and wisest of rulers had their weaknesses and faults. And their rule endured only for a time. But this child of whom Isaiah speaks, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulder the government will rest, his reign is one of eternal perfection. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The kingdom of Christ is far above the kingdoms of men and infinitely superior to them. When we scan, when we scan the pages of history, we see the kingdoms of this world rising and falling across the centuries. Historians tell us that the world has known 21 great civilizations all of which have endured only for a time and then passed away unceremoniously. Babylon was mighty. Where is it today? It's gone. Greece and Rome have fallen. Hitler's Germany was once a force to be reckoned with, but it too collapsed. Currently, the United States is a great world power, but it too may pass into oblivion if they remain unrepentant. Some time ago, we saw that the normal course of the kingdoms of this world is described in a striking way in the book of Daniel. Remember Belshazzar, king of Babylon, had thrown a party in which he defiled the vessels taken from the temple of God at Jerusalem. In the midst of that party, handwriting appeared on the wall of the palace, and Belshazzar was frightened, terrified. The writing said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Take El, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
that very night, Belshazzar was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. This congregation is the ordinary course of human kingdoms, human powers rise and fall. However, the authority of this child, of whom Isaiah speaks, abides forever. Kingdoms of men are weighed in the balances and found wanting. But the responsibilities of government will rest upon the shoulder of the sovereign Christ forever. He is never found wanting. Therefore, dear friends, if your trust is in this divine human king, you are in good hands. In the midst of an unstable and chaotic world, you can look heavenward to your king who is reigning at the right hand of the Father. In the midst of chaos and uncertainty, look to him as the sovereign ruler who will usher in his universal kingdom of righteousness and peace. Christ is on the throne, and soon his reign will be fully manifested to the world. Are you living in difficult circumstances? Remember your king. Are you troubled by various trials and perplexed by the burdens of life? Ponder your king. His rule is one of righteousness, justice, and peace. The government will be upon his shoulder. Although an infant in the manger, that little infant didn't look like a king and wasn't treated like a king, he is now and forever will be highly exalted. And so we've seen the uniqueness of his character and the prediction of his authority. In the time remaining, we want to focus on the dignity of his name. The dignity of his name. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that in the Old Testament, names were very important. A name often identified the nature of the person. To know the name was to know the person. The name given in verse 6 describes the nature of the child. His nature, however, is far too glorious to be captured in one word. Therefore, the one name becomes four descriptive titles. These four descriptive titles are loaded with meaning. Have a look, verse 6b. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, perhaps you're aware there's been some debate as to how many names are actually listed here. There are some who say there are six names. The King James and the New King James have five. Perhaps the best interpretation is that there are four. The comma between wonderful and counselor in the New King James should probably be removed so that these two words are put together as they are in the ESV rather than separated. And so we are given four descriptive titles which show the king to be different from any other king on earth. Let's run through these titles quickly. First of all, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The child is a wonder child. 
The root of this word wonder is used in the word for miracles or wondrous deeds. This wonder, this wonder child transcends the limits of human understanding. He is himself a wonder. In his very person and being, he is a wonder. His nature is incomprehensible to man. And then linked with the word wonderful is the word counselor. This child is a divine counselor, a wonder of a counselor. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wisdom of God. Usually, kings of the ancient world were surrounded by counselors and advisors. But this king has no need of them, for he is himself the counselor. During his life on earth, our Lord demonstrated phenomenal wisdom as a counselor. Those who heard his teaching testified, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Never did a man speak as this man speaks. Congregation, it is to this wonderful counselor that we may turn to find answers to the perplexing questions of life. Many people look for answers to their dif the difficulties in all the wrong places. They run off to unbelieving psychiatrists, psychologists, philosophers, and religious hucksters, but they can't find what they're looking for. Our wonderful counselor is the very best place to turn, for he's the only one who is able to provide you with life-changing truth. He is a counselor who knows everything about you. He knows your needs. He knows how to fill your needs. He knows your problems and how to solve your problems. You can turn to the wonderful divine counselor free of charge and receive true solutions to the frustrating questions of life. He's the answer to all of life's confusion. As you well know, we're living at a time when many people don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. They don't know the difference between a man and a woman. So many are utterly confused. Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to this wonderful divine counselor and direct our life by his word. He's the only answer to the world's confusion. And let us also be counselors to one another instructing and encouraging one another from his word, the word of the wonderful counselor. Then secondly, our text says, his name will be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Once again, the divine nature of the child is revealed. As a king, he rules with power. As mighty God, he is capable of protecting his people. He not only advises you, but he also has the power to care for you. As mighty God, he is able to save all those who put their trust in him. Because he is God, he is able to forgive sin and defeat Satan. He's able to free sinners from the power of evil and transform broken lives. He's able to heal marriages and repair homes. He's able to restore wayward sinners. He's able to, to answer prayers. He's able to rebuild lives. He's able to bring order out of chaos. 
He not only offers counsel, but as mighty God, He provides the strength to hear and obey His counsel. King Ahaz turned to Assyria when he could have turned to this wonderful counselor and mighty God. And brothers and sisters, how often do we fall into a similar error? The greatest of resources are set before us, but how often do we foolishly turn elsewhere? How we need to rely on this mighty God, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, his name will be called Everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father. Again, the title speaks of the divine nature of this child. He is from eternity to eternity. He is eternally a father to his people. As a father cares for his children and supplies all their needs, so the Lord Jesus cares for his people. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord Jesus has compassion on those who fear him. He's deeply concerned about all your needs. Dear friends, what a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is eternally a father to his people. Those of you who are fathers or mothers, you know how intimately involved you are in the lives of your children. If your child comes to you discouraged and downcast, you are concerned. You want to assist him in his predicament. If your son or daughter comes to you with a request or a need, you want to know about it. If your child has a spiritual struggle, you try to help. You're concerned about every aspect of your child's development and growth. Well, congregation, Jesus Christ is eternally a father to his people. When you are deflated or downcast, he's concerned about you and comes to assist you. He cares about every aspect of your life. If you struggle physically, emotionally or financially. He knows your needs and cares as a father. When you wander into dangerous territory, he is there to take you by the hand and pull you back. As the everlasting father, he does not forget or forsake his children. How necessary it is that we look to him as a father and trust him to care for us. And then fourthly, this child of whom Isaiah speaks is not only the wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father, but he's also the prince of peace, the prince of peace. At Christmas time, we are always reminded of the words of the angels who announced peace on earth. But if you think about it, there has never been peace on earth in terms of the absence of war. For 2,000 years since the birth of Jesus, there have been wars and rumors of wars. We all want peace, but we never seem to be able to achieve it. John Lennon saying, give peace a chance. And yet there's always some battle going on. Just listen to the news and you will conclude that peace on earth is an elusive, impossible dream. Well, then what does it mean that this child is the Prince of Peace? Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that he restores peace between God and man. 
Sin has made us enemies of God. But Jesus has come to deal with sin so that peace can be restored. Our first concern should not be peace between nations. Our first concern should be our peace with God. Isaiah says in the 53rd chapter, that well-known chapter of Isaiah, he said, the chastisement for our peace, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Through this child, God is at peace with us, at peace with his people. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, removes the cause of war, namely human sin. He shed his blood on the cross to pay the price for sin. Through his blood, the war is over. The hostility between God and man is removed. The Prince of Peace brings peace to those who have yielded their lives to the authority of his government. Through the blood of the cross, there is peace. Dear friends, on this Christmas day, do you know that peace? I'm not, I'm not merely talking about an inner warm feeling that people might experience at Christmas time. I'm talking about reconciliation with God. Are you right with God? Are you trusting the Prince of Peace? Without Him, there is no peace. And those who do not turn to him will experience everlasting hostility, the eternal, righteous, inescapable anger, wrath of God. So you can see that this king is different from any other who has ever been or ever will be. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. Our Lord Jesus bears a most remarkable name. But the question is, how do you relate to that name? Do you honor it and submit to it? Do you listen to his counsel? Do you surrender to him as mighty God? Do you trust him as the everlasting father? And are you reconciled through the Prince of Peace? Congregation, Ahaz was king of Judah, but he had no regard for the dignity of this name. No regard for the promised Messiah, no genuine love. How is it with you? We can sing many beautiful Christmas songs, but if we're not submitting to that great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's all in vain. Christmas celebrations are meaningless. In fact, they will be held against us if we're not devoted to that wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then, brothers and sisters, as you enjoy Christmas with all its festivities, remember, He is no longer a tiny baby in a manger. As the Prince of Peace, he lived a perfect life, fulfilled the demands of the law, was crucified as the Lamb of God, and died for your sin. The Prince of Peace has earned your peace. And he is coming again, not as a little baby, 
but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then worship him. Worship him. When Handel wrote the Messiah, he felt as though I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. I don't know if Handel was truly saved or not, but may his statement be true for each of you as you contemplate this great name of the Savior. He came as a humble baby, but he's coming again as the exalted sovereign Lord and King. May the thought of his coming fill your heart with gratitude and joy. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Do you love him? Let us pray. Lord, you've revealed such amazing truths through one verse. Glorious truths soul-satisfying truths. We thank you for that wonderful prophecy written as though it had already occurred. Such certainty. As we gather here today, we know it's completed. And we praise you, Lord, for fulfilled prophecy. We thank you for the uniqueness of his character. That he is true man, true God, the God-man. We thank you for the dignity of his name. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us would yield to his authority. We pray once again, even as yesterday, we prayed that our celebrations would not only be characterized by sentimentality, but by genuine worship. Thank you for our wonderful counselor. Thank you that he is mighty God, everlasting Father, and has secured our peace as the Prince of Peace. May it be true of each and every one of us that we would know Him, trust Him, love Him, build our lives upon Him, and eagerly anticipate His coming from the clouds of heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are and all that you have done. We worship you. Amen.